Welcome to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. With me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gash Burnett. Welcome back to Berlin Inside Out, the podcast that takes an expert look at international politics from Berlin in association with the German Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Benjamin Tallis, Senior Research Fellow here at the Council, and I'm here with my friend and co-host Aaron Gashburnett, a journalist specializing in German politics. Following on from our conversation with the representatives of the Baltic parliaments, the chairs of the Foreign Affairs Committee of uh, Estonia and Lithuania, as well as with Artis Pabriks, the former defense minister and deputy prime minister of Latvia, we are delighted to be joined today by Ulrike von Hirschhausen for a further conversation on the Baltics and their relations with Germany, their relationships with Europe and their place in the emerging European order. Dr. Ulrike von Hirschhausen, our guest today, is a professor of European and modern history at Rostock University. She is co-author of a recent book called Empires, which, among other cases, looks at the historical roots of Russian imperialism and colonialism. She's written extensively on Ukraine uh, in German newspapers. Professor, one of your commentaries for Tagesspiegel argues that Ukraine was always part of the West. We certainly heard uh, from our Baltic guests in our previous conversation that Ukraine needs to be included in one of the West's most important institutions, that is NATO. But German leadership, particularly in the chancellor's office, isn't on board with that, at least not yet. What explains this difference in Baltic and German approaches here? Is there an imperialist streak in German thinking that explains this reluctance when the Baltics say, let's go? What is forgotten in Western Europe is that even under Soviet rule, there was a very strong Ukrainian exile, as they called themselves government, particularly based in Canada and in the United States and also in Great Britain. And they formed in the 60s, 70s, and particularly in the 80s, kind of sort of, we would say in German, Gegenregierung, an alternative government trying to come up with foreign policy um, towards a long-term perspective of Ukrainian autonomy, be it within the Soviet Union or, of course, after 89, beyond the Russian borders. And we see that also um, as an experience. Uh, it's certainly Latvia has a similar experience of having uh, government in exiles as well, right? The whole, all, all of the Baltics. Uh, so this is a common experience. And being a historian, I would even go sort of further back in the 19th century and argue because parts of Ukrainian territory used to be under the Habsburg rule. There were kind of, I wouldn't call it democratic traditions, but they had so-called Landtage. So there was a sort of participation. It was a totally different regime than in the bordering Russian uh, territory of Ukraine. And I think if we take this together, the 19th and the 20th century, Ukraine was not territorially placed in the West, um, but I think mentally and politically, parts of the representatives were absolutely attuned to Western attitudes and goals. Right. And this is something that's often overlooked in common Absolutely. Western European understandings of our relations to the region. The histories that we tended to get at school and that are popularly told are ones of division rather than connection. But we know there are plural connections to the Baltic states as well as to Ukraine. That's the problem because in school, etc., in the West, we looked for a long time on territory, but we didn't look at societies so much. But if we look at societies, we see how the actors, the Ukrainian actors in the 19th and 20th century, same as the Baltic actors, how they migrated, how they moved, how they received different ideas. So looking at societies, I think, brings us further in recognizing this Ukrainian Western side 
as looking to territory only. And when we actually look at that society, you know, the movement of cultures as opposed to simply uh, territory, we also see that um, in, for example, the history between Germany and the Baltic states. Um, the Baltic Germans were a classic uh, example of this. Um, so Germany and the Baltic states have both contemporary but also deep historical ties. Um, and our recent chat with our Baltic uh, guests would certainly uh, suggest that. Uh, what are the key forms of, of cooperation and what's the key history between uh, Germany and the Baltic states? Well, I think that the history or the way Baltic people, Baltic societies see the history has really changed after 89, but also during the Soviet occupation. Because until 1918, the Baltic Germans, as a sort of very prestige-orientated minority, ruling minority, non-Latvian, non-Lithuanian, non-Estonian minority, was right. very unpopular. Mm -hmm. And the revolution of 1905 and again 1918 and 17 was absolutely against sort of, you know, tearing that down on that rule. And then I think it changed particularly after 45 under the Soviet occupation, then there was a different remembrance of this German Baltic rule. And particularly, of course, after 91 and independence, the cooperation on the political, economical side. And now I think also on the energy side, which plays a huge role in getting more autonomy from Russia's resources. Germany plays an entirely different role from sort of a colonial uh, role today in uh, sort of role uh, helping to decolonize the Baltics. But there are still echoes of that colonial mindset. The imperial gaze lingers in unusual places, including when we spoke with the, uh, the parliamentarians about NATO membership, about the recognition of smaller states' rights to act and enact themselves. We heard of the, um, we heard Thomas Ilves a couple of weeks ago also talking about the, the recent papers from Helmut Kohl and Hans-Dietrich Genscher that were released last year that showed they didn't even want initially the Baltic states to be independent, let alone to join our key organizations. Is that still behind some of the decision-making in Germany, do you think? I was absolutely struck when after probably five or six weeks after February 24th, you know, when Russia uh, invaded Ukraine, there was a very famous talk show in Germany with Steingart, one of the most famous journalists here in Germany. And he was bold enough to propose uh, the Russian government and the German government should sit together and within, you know, a couple of days they would, you know, figure out a solution for, you know, coming to terms with the invasion. I mean, this was just incredible. And people did react immediately. Sabine Fischer, for example, from uh, the Stiftung Wissenschaft and Politik. So, but this was just one of these echoes of this former idea Central Eastern Europe doesn't play a big role between the big nations, also Russia and Germany. But I think that the war on Ukraine has really changed this perception. Well, that's right. I think it was uh, Caroline Greuter who spoke to us a couple of weeks ago saying that the, the Baltic states, as well as others in Central Eastern Europe, have started to find their voice in a serious way at the European level. But I'd, I'd go further and say, actually, it's that others are starting to listen to their voice and they're starting to be taken seriously in a way that they haven't before because they've shown that moral and political leadership that has been lacking elsewhere. And I think it's not only a moral and political leadership, I think also in terms of the military leadership, they are taking a new sort of stand and they are recognized as, you know, intelligent governments who warned already for years. 
um, against the possibility of cross-border invasion, which has now come true. And with a GDP of by now 3% for all Baltic states, I mean, they are far ahead of what Germany tried to do for a long time. So I think also in this military respect, which now is of a new importance, they show us the way, the path. Yes, they've put their money where their mouths are and actually stepped up in that sense as well. But it's interesting what you mentioned, that that, uh, that legacy of even things like the partition of Poland, the partition of Eastern Europe, the Zwischenländer mentality still endures. How do you see that played out in current German policy? Not so strong, actually. I think the real threat that we now see a cross-border invasion, which in the West nobody thought possible, but the Baltic states did sort of see that as a possible uh, scenario. And that has really changed, I think, the situation. And I think we do see it with this brigade in Lithuania, which was for a long time a very difficult issue, but it's now coming along. We have a strong uh, defense minister and there is this, def uh, you know, there's association between the defense ministers of the Baltics, of Poland and of Germany. Mm. And they are now forming a new coalition. Um, so I think the terrible threat of Russia's re-imperialization project has woke up, has, you know, uh, German politicians. It is really important to acknowledge that that change has to a significant extent taken place in the mindset of people like Defense Minister Boris Pistorius and in the words he's been able to offer, even if there's still not the commitment from the government to winning the war in Ukraine and to giving it the weapons it needs to do so, which does still put it apart from the mentality of the Baltic states, the worldview of the Baltic states. Also, I would add to that, actually, the outlook on NATO membership for Ukraine is another uh, piece of that puzzle that you were mentioning, uh, Ben, in terms of uh, giving Ukraine what it needs to win, but also a perspective on what happens after uh, it, it does so. And this is a cleavage that we do still see between Germany and the Baltics. And I think you see it also materialize very much on the ground. I mean, they reinstituted conscription. This is also a debate starting right now in Germany with a completely different sort of international uh, scenarios of Russia as the big new threat again. Hasn't come that far yet, probably won't. But, you know, you see the differences. They reinstitute conscription. Here it's only a debate, will probably remain a debate, but that shows on the ground how different the views are. That's right. And we did hear uh, Defense Minister Pistorius this week in Berlin saying that's not going to be on the priority agenda. So again, the, the different vision for society in relation to geopolitics endures. I actually remember the TV program that you referenced earlier. Um, and it was pretty shocking to me too. Um, and it kind of confirmed a suspicion that I had long had, which is that um, in Germany as a culture, we... I guess, pretended that we had jettisoned imperial thinking because we had renounced it for ourselves as Germany. But that didn't necessarily mean that we had um, renounced that mindset when we're dealing with other countries, particularly Russia. I'd love to jump on that remark. Please you, do. Because I think this is a real difference between the Baltics and the German public, that the idea of imperial legacies is something which in Germany is not really understood except some experts. Um, and this plays a huge role for the Baltics, for Ukraine, of course, but for the Baltics in particular. And I arrived uh, on my last visit in Riga last summer, and it was the very day where the government 
have destroyed this huge monument for the Soviet soldiers um, in World War II. This was a monument where Russian minority groups used to gather, get drunk, etc. Um, so there were rallies already in Latvia after war, the war on Ukraine started against this relic of the Soviet times. So symbols matter much more than before. Today, any symbols of Russian imperialism are not bearable anymore for the majority of the Latvian population. And these imperial legacies, be they manifested in monuments, in practices, in different sorts sort of, of political patterns, um, they just crystallizing as something which the Latvian population do not want anymore. And this is not understood in Germany. And you actually wrote the book on this, uh, Empires. And you were telling us actually that you lived in Riga uh, for six years. So I can imagine that your experience there absolutely influenced uh, your writing of this book um, to be able to talk about how Latvians and other Baltic countries see empire versus how Germans see it. Well, for example, there's one theme which might connect my time in Riga, which was in the 90s and early 2000s, with the situation today. And this is citizenship. When I was there, citizenship was the key controversial argument between the new Latvian government, the nationalizing state, and the national minorities, as Rogers Brubeckers calls it. And we have the same situation now. We still have quite an eminent group of Russian speakers who do not have citizenship. And this is one of the situations where the Russian government for already years tries to sort of move in and use them as a weapon to build up this idea of Ruskimir. So uh, preparing, securing um, co-nationals beyond its own borders. Um, and we have totally underestimated this whole idea of Roskimir. Only some experts have really seen the dimension of that. And today, Russia, the Russian government tries to destabilize the Baltics by using these co-nationals. What I find interesting, it doesn't really work anymore because the Russian minorities in the Baltics are pretty fragmented. There's a generation change and there was a devastating defeat of Harmony. This is the party of the Russian uh, speakers in Latvia. They had a devastating defeat in the last parliamentary elections. So it's not as easy as it used to be to instrumentalize these kind of Russian minorities in the Baltics as it used to be. No, absolutely. And that political fragmentation is one thing, but one can't help but think that the real mismatch between the soft power of the European Union and its members versus the total lack of soft power that the Putin regime, uh, that that Russia has, cannot help but have some influence on the thinking of Russian speakers, of ethnic Russians living in the Baltic states. They, They have it up close and personal, the difference between what's on offer, don't they? I think there's a difference um, between being culturally part of the Ruskimir, of the Russian cultural world, but not wanting to be politically a part of that. So culturally, there are lots of connections and people really do feel that they want to position themselves in this idea of a Ruskimir, but politically, they are not intended to do this. So they would not use their sort of status as national minority to rally against the Latvian or Estonian government. So I think there's a really difference between these both spheres. 
I th- I'm sure you're right, uh, but I think it's been interesting to see that the Baltic states have not been alone in demanding a little bit more fealty, demanding a bit more loyalty um, and overt commitment to their state, rather than just not being actively politically supporting Russia, they want people to really show commitment. And this has also come to be seen in the arguments over the Russian television station uh, or the Russian language TV station Dojd in Latvia. Maybe our views on that differ a little bit. Um, I followed suit the Dojd situation and maybe to our listeners who don't know what Dojd is, it's one of the most important um, opposition channels in Russia and they had to leave Russia. So they Uh, positioned themselves in Riga, and then they got banned in December uh, 2022. So why did they get banned? Because they refused to do these voiceover options for their um, broadcasting, which is required by law. Um, So sort of a Latvian subtitles, we would call it on the TV, but in broadcasting is this the voiceover option. Um, And I think this was a little bit taking the situation too far because if there would have been a little bit more compromise on the either side of the people from Dost, respecting Latvian law, particularly with this hypersensitivity against every anything which could be seen as an imperial sort of behavior. But on the other side, um, also the Latvians could have been a little bit more interested in giving them a chance to position themselves, I think, uh, in Riga as a really key opposition role, particularly for this younger Russian speaker minorities in uh, Latvia. Yes, I mean, that's certainly an argument. It, I guess the, the question comes to whether we think that Russian opposition is actually an opposition. And that's something that has been under question in the Baltic states and elsewhere. And of course, the scandal over Dodged also came in the wake of the collection for of money for Russian soldiers who are actively fighting in Ukraine. Then in the court case, the Dodged people refused to speak in, in Latvian, refused to have an interpreter. So there was, you could see how this escalated uh, between the parties involved. Um, but it does raise questions for the future about exactly how to engage different voices and how to protect minority rights as well within uh, liberal states. So I think it's an interesting case to look at different options for, for dealing with that. I think what is becomes clear also for you know our listeners who are not particularly familiar with the situation that standing against Putin does not always mean supporting Ukraine. And this situation is if that's played out in the Baltics, supporting Ukraine is one of the key agendas right now. So if opposition against the regime in Putin does not correspond correspond with, you know, supporting Ukraine, then this liberal opposition, you know, now based in the Baltics has a difficult stand. It does. And there are questions over whether they're in opposition. There's questions over whether they're liberal. And there's questions to what extent this would just be another form of Russian imperialism. And obviously, the Baltic states are very and rightly sensitive to that. But I, I want to come back to something you said earlier. You talked about when you were living in um, in Riga for, for six years or so. There were obvious cultural connections to, to Russia. But were there connections, cultural connections to Germany as well that you saw there? I think there were a lot of connections in both sides. I mean, the connections to Germany were in the process of renewed because they had been not active for such a long time. 
but also the so-called German Baltic groups in Germany, which are not anachronistic here. They don't have any revisionist stance. They, they transformed into sort of, you know, uh, sending aids, um, sending consultants, um, offering seminars, etc. So this, you know, long subdued um, visibility became now active again um, and helped a lot. I think it helped a lot that Riga in the late 90s was uh, the center for all EU um, negotiations. So it was a hub for a lot of European and American and also Canadian um, groups. So that helped a lot too. But I experienced the Russian uh, connections also very, very strong. And I was involved in a monument uh, battle um, because a Russian uh, uh, oil entrepreneur renovated the famous Peter I monument um, in the time when I was there. It was a monument erected in 1913. Um, and there were huge rallies against erecting this monument again. And the oil entrepreneur had, you know, took care of all the uh, renovation. And I think it was a great situation to argue for um, several memories existing uh, next to each other, which at that time was still possible. The monument got erected. It stands in the center of Riga by now. And as far as I know, it's not been destroyed yet. But this was a time where, you know, competing memories were difficult to position, but they were, it was possible. I think today with the war on Ukraine, it's much more difficult to uh, accept that. I always find this fascinating, these competing plural memory cultures and the city as the, the urban palimpsest of memory, uh, different layerings which are emphasized or de-emphasized or suppressed or forgotten. This must have been a wonderful experience. Can you share some some memories? From yeah, <laughs> thank you so much for asking that. <laughs> I love to answer that question. Um, you know, being a German, um, and I have lived in California for many years, and then coming from California to Soviet-influenced Latvia in 1997 was just sort of, you know, earth-shattering. I, I was just completely taken aback. Um, and I was always interested in ethnicity, but... Even in California, ethnicity was something which happened in the seminars, you know, <laughs> in a you know in a lecture hall, and I was interested in that, but I couldn't really get a grasp. And then coming to Latvia and being in Riga, exactly between 1997 uh, and 2003, when Latvia developed from a post-Soviet society into an EU candidate, was the very time where ethnicity played such a role with the citizenship situation, imperial legacies being renewed or not, sort of the monument uh, battle, which was raging in Riga at that time, minority rights, the language situation, wherever you were, ethnicity played its relevance out on the street. And this was just, for me, it was earth shattering to see that this is not a category, theoretical, which historians and political scientists discuss in lecture halls. This plays out in Central Eastern Europe. You can see it, touch it and feel it. And this is also what's been tangible in the response of the Baltic states, in the response of Poland and the Czech Republic and others to Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine. There's a very clear national 
agenda. There's a very clear um, collective societal agenda at play here. And I think that's something that we've become afraid of in Western Europe, yet it's being shown to us how you can use this for liberal, democratic and progressive purpose. And I think what people in Germany don't or have a hard time to understand that also this memory battles um, it's what, what is called, Timothy Gartner-Ash, I think, had this wonderful wording, in search of a usable past. And that's what they need to do for their nation building. And here in the West, ethnicity and nation building has a very different um, way to be perceived as rather a little negative. And that's I think I mean, this yeah. totally, completely, you know, different views on what ethnicity and nation building means. That's right. And we've, we've talked about this in past episodes of the podcast okay. that actually, you know, it's not your history, it's what you do with it. And we've seen the, the contrast between the Hungarian response to the Russian invasion versus the Baltic response, just as one example. And so finding that usable past exactly to use, put it forward into the present. But also, I think we've seen in Western Europe, the, the evacuation from national identity of most people who would consider themselves liberal, progressive, or so on. And I think we're missing a trick there. There are more liberal ways of doing this that could come back to us. Otherwise, we risk uh, losing that at uh, this key point of identification for our own usable politics in the future. But I want to ask something else very quickly, because you, at the time you were there, you mentioned this culture shock of going from California to Riga. This was also a time of great hope as well as massive change, rapid change. And it's I, I spent time in Central Eastern Europe shortly afterwards, in, in Prague mainly at that stage, but I remember things changing week to week. And we have talked before on this show about how some of the current generation of leaders in the Baltic states, in the Czech Republic, seem to be drawing energy from that time again. Well, and actually using that history, as we say, uh, to uh, put a positive vision forward for the country, for example, which I feel like we have uh, forgotten to do sometimes um, in Western Europe. Also, I think because the whole question of identity um, in, in Western Europe has um, often in recent years been left to even the far right. And if you bring up this whole question of uh, a liberal conception of national identity, you, you know, get people assume that you come from a, a right political tradition, yet uh, the Baltics are showing us that, uh, in fact, this is a um, discussion that you can have across a wide uh, array of political traditions. You can have it in a liberal political tradition, and you can uh, do something with it to actually chart um, a future, uh, a, a promising future, a prosperous future. Yeah, and maybe I would add that in the Baltics, we see that a national identity can come along with a regional identity as well, right. because we have on the one side nation building in all these three countries, but we have also very strong in the 90s and 2000s until today, sort of a region building. We have seen it in this, you know, singer festivals, which united the three Baltics, and I think we the do Baltic it. The Baltic chain. Right, the Baltic chain, but we do see it in the energy um, uh, uh, efforts right now where they try to force or to disentangle themselves from the, you know, dependence on Russian uh, resources. And in that respect, they also try, I think, uh, in a very modern way of region building by a joint energy um, politics, which I think should be supported much more from Germany and from the West. Right. And this is it, that building a nation doesn't necessarily mean building a wall, <laughs> building a barrier to others. It means being part of a stronger collective identity as well. We are multiple things at any times. So we know that our identities are highly intersectional. They cross and overlap. We can be 
German, British, European, argued in the British case, but nonetheless, you can belong to multiple identifications at once. And that that's something I find very interesting about this as well. But just to push a little bit on this legacy of the 1990s, legacy of hope, a lot of people look to the Baltic states now as countries of the future. Um, they, they seem to be very forward-looking. Is that connected to that past, do you think, that past of, of, of post-communist transition? Or where do you see them drawing that hope from? Well, I think that one of the more modern features in the Baltic societies, particularly in Estonia, is, of course, the way they deal with the digital, digitalization. Um, Estonia, I think, is the most forward digitalized state within the European Union right now. But because they are so digitalized, I think they are also prone to more um, hyper uh, activity from the Russian side. So the cyber war, which is part of this Ruski Mir concept on the side of Russia, um, is probably pretty effective, as we have already seen, because they are these societies, you know, are already so progressive in terms of, you know, uh, digital um, politics. Indeed. I mean, it was ever thus in a way. The matrix of modernity provides both the means to live and the attack surface against which is weaponized against us. But that's been the same with transport networks and uh, so on. Now it's in the digital age as well. So you're right, they face different challenges, but that also has put them at the forefront of digital defense. And we see the hybrid warfare center, the NATO hybrid warfare center is based in the Baltics for, for this reason. And Lithuania built an LNG terminal in 2014, where in Germany, nobody even ever thought of anything like this. I mean, it has backs, you know, there's also a flip side of these LNG terminals in terms of, you know, climate change. But still in the situation right now, I think this is the thing to do to become more independent. And you were asking about what's progressive about these states. So I would say this whole digital dimension is something very progressive where they could work as a model also for, you know, for Europeans. But the way they deal with energy, I think, is also something which we have at least to look at how they, you know, put it forward. Actually, I think all of these examples, whether it comes to um, the LNG terminal in Lithuania or even their Indo-Pacific strategy, for example, the first in Europe to have one, um, the, you know, the, the digital advancements in Estonia, all of these things are just examples among many others of, you know, uh, especially Baltic countries, but also in Central and Eastern Europe more widely of countries that are far more advanced even than in, in Germany in a lot of files. Well, contrary, Aaron, Aaron con- don't, don't be unfair. We can con- now do digital Meldbeshanik. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. As of, to- as of today, I, well, I mean, you know, we're still re- even... Re-announced oh, today we- after two years. But we're even clarifying what that even means. This is the, we don't know what knows what this means, right? All of this flies in the face of, of the old German stereotype of, you know, advanced Germany and backward Central and Eastern Europe. And um, I think that we're obviously at a moment where I think more and more people in Germany are sitting up and taking notice of all of these but things. But is, is that hard for Germans to deal with? to realize that this this old stereotype of looking down on the East is starting to come the other way and looking and saying, oh, they're more advanced than we are in a number of ways. Is that something hard for Germans? Let's put it this way. What sort of things should Germany actually really sit up and take notice on and maybe reevaluate in terms of lessons that it can learn from the Baltic states? Giving the Baltics a new standing in Germany it works only via very concrete uh, examples, you know, because mediating imperial legacies and what that means, that doesn't work. 
that might work for some intellectuals or so, but it doesn't work for the broader public. But this energy problem, um, to get that, um, come to grips with that, these are, I think, I think concrete examples which would um, radiate into the German public. The willingness is also there on the other side to have more German involvement. We saw when President Nauseder came here to Berlin in April and he talked about wanting Germany to do more. And so this, this fear sometimes in the German public debate that if we lead, we will be seen as leading too much, leading too far. I don't think that's an issue in this case. There's demand for genuine German leadership that listens to its neighbors, listens to its allies, On that's on defense as well as on energy. And we see the Baltic Sea wind power initiative uh, coming in from its nascent stage into a more fulfilling stage. So that actually gives some flesh on the bones of that. But the last thing I'd say is that in Nauseda's speech in April, he did say, and we Lithuanians stand ready, Germany, to help you with your digital transformation as well. <laughs> I think Germany has also a hard time to accept that in the end, looking from today with hindsight, the Baltic states were right in judging Russia. And that is a hard lecture <laughs> for Germans to accept. Because since the 90s, these two groups have a far more realistic view on Central Eastern Europe and the threats a new Central Eastern Europe is facing than um, it was, you know, for lots of Germans possible to think even of. And I might think I, I wouldn't reproach them because, you know, you have to live there to realize that. Um, but these are the groups which basically anticipated what's happening right now and always tried to, you know, prep, prepare for that threat of cross-border invasion, which we have now coming become a real threat. To Germany's credit, as you mentioned earlier, they are stepping up in terms of the brigade in Lithuania. And this, this is widely welcomed, as I say, by Lithuanians. Um, in Latvia, next door, there's the Canadian Pocket Brigade, as we called it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Baltics certainly have looked to um, the U.S. in terms of being their main security partner, um, which, of course, uh, has at times frustrated France and Germany in questions of strategic autonomy uh, and this sort of thing, the idea of, of having uh, more uh, European-based defense cooperation. Uh, but what sort of... Uh, let, let's contrast how the Baltics see um, Canada and the U.S. with how they see Germany in terms of, you know, what sort of country is Germany? Germany in their in their worldview, especially compared to those other allies that they have as well. I think something which we haven't been speaking about is um, the presence of a fairly um, vocal um, can, uh, Estonian and Latvian minorities in Canada and the US. Minorities is probably not the right word. I mean, they're small groups. Diasporas, yeah. Yeah, but they're very vocal. Um, yeah. They're very capable to voice, you know, the positions even before the Iron Curtain uh, fall. And these groups, um, I think, have partly sent their kids um, to the Baltic states in the 90s. And I know a couple of friends are, you know, descendants of former refugees um, to Canada and to the United States. So there is a very close connection, I think, between the three Baltic countries and the United States, Great Britain and Canada because of this, you know, migration after well, enforced migration after World War II. Well, that, that's right. And we've seen that. I mean, several uh, emigre families have given us some of the leading politicians in the region. I mean, Thomas We had this singular had situation in the 90s that three um, Baltic presidents were all from, you know, the US, I think, from Canada and from Great Britain. They all came from exiled groups. 
Well, and indeed we saw also during Soviet occupation um, how even things like Latvian poems um, were smuggled out of Latvia into the hands of these diaspora groups. They became almost, you know, custodians to safeguard Latvian culture because, of course, it was was oppressed at home. And I think it brings us back to this idea looking at people and societies rather than looking only to territories because we see these, you know, the the impact of these minorities, of these refugees. We see them only if we look at the globalized world more with respect to people. Um, And they formed a strong group, particularly in Canada, I think. Um, The Latvians were very strong, were very well organized and jumped on the situation in 1989 and 1991 to bring back resources, people, ideas. Um, So again, I think we have to look at the people. And then we see that the Baltics are not an isolated territory under you know, imperial rule for so long, but they are connected with the world, even under the auspices of the Iron Curtain. Oh, absolutely right. And I mean, this is why you've written a global history, as you, as you call it in your empire book. And this is a growing movement in academic uh, history work towards global histories. And we've seen there's a new global history of Germany by David Blackburn. And I think that's a really fascinating aspect that we do try and draw out on this podcast, which is why it's called Berlin Side Out. You're so right to point to that sudden ability to draw on human as well as financial capital after 89 as one of the kickstarters for um, development in in the Baltic states, the post-communist transition turbocharged by the diaspora communities. We've seen this in, in the Estonian case as well, that they benefited from actually making sure that every Estonian is a citizen wherever they live. They may not have claimed it, they may not have a passport, but they are by default a citizen, which is a remarkable approach that gives you that way in straight away. Well, maybe another point which we sort of could look at it a little bit more is this uh, role of the Russian minorities right now, because I also think that a problem with the rhetoric, the nationalizing state in that respect, Latvia or Estonia, right now use, and you mentioned um, um, Timothy Snyder, and I was adamantly against his way to conceptualize the war on Ukraine as a colonial war, which is completely rubbish. If you look what a colonial war normally is, we see Ukraine in a global alliance, maybe not as strong as we would wish it to have, but it's integrated into a global alliance by now. So to talk about Ukraine as a colony and about the aggression as a colonial war is, I think, completely sort of um, misleading. And I think on both sides, also on the Western side, we have to be more careful about our our rhetoric. And that relates directly to sort of, you know, Russian minority groups in the Baltics, because this, you know, difficult rhetoric also alienates them. So I think it's a little bit on both sides that, you know, how do we deal with this situation in terms of verbal approach, in terms of our rhetoric? The language that's used also, this relates to, to bloodlands, Zwischenländer. We've seen various different ways of describing the very distinction between Central Europe, Eastern Europe, Nordic, Baltic. These things are not neutral terms. They come loaded with power implications, with power relations. And so I think a lot of Central Eastern European countries have spent a long time trying to overturn the negative implications of that. And now they seem able to do so. The the East has become desirable for a lot of people. Um, so what, what do you think in that regard does the future hold for the Baltic states and for Baltic-German relations? 
I think, you know, going directly to the words you were mentioning, the term Baltic has today, I think, a different connotation than it used to have 20 years ago. Maybe 20 or 25 years ago, it was a little bit sort of anachronistic, this kind of border regions where we didn't really know how to, you know, judge them. And if you hear Baltic now, be it joint Baltic Sea Energy Platform or um, GDP situation, you know, Baltic is rather associated with a northern um, connotation, progressive in terms of digital experience and modernity and, you know, boldness in a way. Um, so I think the whole connotation which comes along with the term Baltic due to their work and due to the geopolitical change we see right now, has become a rather positive, modern approach um, than it used to be 20 years ago. Yeah, be bold, be brave, be Baltic. We can close on that. <laughs> My services are available for free to the, uh, the the branding departments of the Baltic state governments. The Baltics um, certainly show us a lot of um, opportunity, um, but also for um, us to take advantage um, of that opportunity, I guess as Europeans just in general, but also um, you know here in Germany, uh, we have to... Uh, I think come up with a different way of, of relating to the Baltics um, in, in particular. And that is really as uh, seeing our relationship with these countries um, as providing opportunities, you know, mutually beneficial opportunities in their own right, as opposed to uh, simply engaging with the Baltics as in the overall context of the relationship with Russia, as has been um, practice in a lot of German um, diplomacy before uh, February 2022. There's a lot of challenges there's a lot of opportunities, but it comes with taking advantage of those, meeting those challenges, of taking advantage of those opportunities requires that new mindset. So how do we do that? Well, as you said, Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia are now at the forefront of the security shift in a way. So I think security politics, security policies is, is one area where we could come to more of a cooperation on an equal sort of standing, you know, looking at them with their th 3% GDP expenses for military. Um, this is what I said before. Would, I think this is kind of a model where we can come up with a sort of, you know, we would say in Germany, of Augenhöhe, a cooperation. At eye level. At eye level. So Seeing eye to eye, right? Yeah. <laughs> you have the right wording. <laughs> yeah, at eye level. It's an expression that basically means engaging as, as equals. That's hard to translate into English listeners. So that's and what I And I think also here. to take up a very sort of, you know, up-to-date issue is dealing with diasporas, dealing with minorities. I mean, they went through a difficult time, but we are now going through a difficult time too, seeing the Israel-Palestina conflict and how do we deal with our Arab-speaking diasporas and our sort of, you know, refugees from Palestine or groups from Palestine who, you know, demonstrate on German streets, free Palestine. Um, so dealing with minorities, they have a long tradition with that, the Baltics. And I think maybe if we were a little bit more open, we could at least take a look. How do they deal with that problem of a globalized world? So we've heard a lot about the overturning of old hierarchies and certainties, the opening up of different dynamics of learning and the huge opportunities this brings. Working out how to play better as a team, 
together, working out what our different roles are on that team. And just to be clear, Germany as a stronger team player is something that would be warmly welcomed across the Baltic states and in which Germany could potentially excel if it also learns to let others take the lead sometimes and to play in their own roles too. Exactly. So thanks very much to our guests this week for joining us to uh, lay that out very clearly. Uh, you can find out more about them and their recent work in our show notes. Uh, we hope you'll join us for the rest of the season as we head to Poland, up north to the Nordics, and eventually west to Paris, London, Ottawa, and Washington to talk about how Germany can reinvigorate those ties with key partners during this time of Zeitenwende. Until next time, from Berlin, Auf Wiedersehen and Tschüss.